Welcome to another episode of Congo Kids Life Stories, where I share my experiences of growing up in the Congo in Central Africa. My hope is you find knowledge, entertainment, information, and insight of another culture and a new perspective of the Congolese people and Africa. I took a different approach for this episode. Normally, I write my story in script, then bring on experts or folks that are knowledgeable about the topic, and interview them to both spice up the episode, mainly so you don't have to listen to me the whole time, but also to bring their expertise and perspective and slant to the subject. This time, I interviewed my guests first, and then wrote the storyline. Today's topic is on the comparison of handling death, funerals, and grief in the United States versus the DR Congo. While the topic itself is a bit sensitive, as many folks don't like to talk about it or deal with it, I had a thesis as how Americans deal with this was quite a bit different than Congolese. I did confirm in this episode that there are distinct differences in how Americans and Congolese handle the funeral service and rituals, grief, familial support, post-internment, and moving forward for oneself and for the remaining family of the deceased. Death is always a touchy subject. It is not something most people want to talk about or confront for themselves or their loved ones. Many don't want to face it, deal with it, or plan for it. Unfortunately, death is the one thing every person on the planet has in common. Guess what, listener? Everyone dies. Most don't know how to handle it when a relative, friend, or loved one passes away. And as such, the handling of the funeral ritual and post-funeral time to cope and accept the new reality can be a traumatic time for many. Different cultures have different rituals, different ways to look at death, and how to handle the moving forward and acceptance of grief. As a child in DR Congo growing up, death was very real and rather common, much more so than here in America, unfortunately. Here in the U.S., aside from one's grandparents passing away in their 70s, 80s, or even 90s, which is expected, very few people in my circle younger than my grandparents' age have passed away during my life. While in Congo, almost every person has had a sibling or cousin die in their childhood. So death was common, real, and, no pun intended, part of life. Here in the U.S., with incredible medical facilities, better sanitation, childhood vaccinations, and better nutrition, child mortality is very rare, and many diseases are cured or managed here in the U.S., unlike in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So in this episode, I will be exploring the differences and similarities between the American and Congolese culture's handling of death, funerals, burial, grief, and post-mortem for the family and friends of the deceased. I've interviewed three Congolese and an American who is in the funeral business to present the similarities and differences. They will articulate these end-of-life dimensions that we all experience when we are alive and when we will be the main attraction when we meet our demise one day. I should mention that even within Congo, rituals do vary depending on what part of the country you are from or what tribe you are from. The first thing we ask when we hear the news of someone passing away is, what was the cause? Or we might ask, was it expected? These are good questions and fill our curiosity as to if someone was tragically killed in a car accident, caught a rare form of cancer, had been fighting a fatal disease, or was 89 years old with heart problems and a smoker and a drinker. 
The response to our question will impact our immediate sense of grief. A 94-year-old person who'd been in decline and died of old age is less traumatic to us than, say, hearing about your 15-year-old niece that was hit by a drunk driver. So once we hear the explanation as to the cause of death, we begin our processing of the response to the remaining loved ones and our own grief. This is also true in Congo. Everyone wants to know the circumstances surrounding the death, but it goes further. What is the cause of the person dying? Who caused it or who put a curse on that person to have them die? Someone has to take the blame for the deceased, even if the person dies of sickness or in a car accident. This is very important and is not to be taken lightly. To help explain this further, I've asked Segbewi Mobali, who lives in Congo, to share about this dimension of determining who was behind the death. It is still prevalent, but still, if you are a Bantu, if you are Congolese, you are African, you want to explain somebody's death one way or another. It is not just accidental because people are not supposed to die. That's the conception. Death occurs, but when it comes at a certain time before the person is like, you know, 70 or 80, somebody has to be responsible for interrupting the course of the life of some person. And so it's not unusual that after those kind of talks, Somebody's labeled a witch because, you know, you never liked uh, that person anyways. You always were in, in conflict. So you probably caused this to happen. And because of, you know, your kind of uh, antagonism with one another, you have actually provoked this. Or, yes, it still happens because they need to explain one way or another why that person died. Another Congolese that lives in Southern California, Talabisa Dawina, shares more about this concept of blaming someone for the death. I, I don't know who said, they said there is no African who dies of a natural death. There is always someone to blame behind that. Because they believe that, I mean, life doesn't stop by itself. There must be someone who comes and snitches the life from someone's body. That's a belief for many Africans. We'll always blame somebody. Here in the U.S., in the olden days, with telephones, the word of someone's passing went rather quickly, and the network of the deceased would be notified quickly. Plans for the funeral would be easily made known to all, and with embalming or cremation being prevalent, there wasn't a rush to inter the body. Normally, in the U.S., a person is buried within a week of passing. Say someone dies on a Tuesday afternoon. Having a funeral service on Saturday isn't unusual. Contrast that to notifying folks of a death in the Congo back in the 1970s or 80s when there were no phones. Couple that with there not being embalming or cremation and being in the tropics, no less, the body needed to be buried within 24 to 36 hours. Surprisingly, word would spread faster than you'd think. Often, messages of the death would be shared with folks passing through a village in a truck or motorcycle to share with someone in the city, for example. Others would send out people on bicycles to spread the news to nearby villages or cities. I've asked my friend Motese Moyu to explain. <laughs> 
One way to spread the news of someone's passing was to send people out on bicycles in all directions to tell friends and family members in other villages or cities. A telltale sign was flowers placed on the handlebars of the bicycle. This was symbolic that the rider was carrying a message of someone's dying. My friend John Lundquist tells the story of a lady he encountered in high school back in the 1970s that was walking to a funeral of a relative. It was dusk, and she had been walking all day, approximately 40 miles, and was going to walk all night to go another 30 miles. She didn't have any food or water. John walked with her a ways and chatted with her about her journey and destination. She was determined to make the funeral the next day, even if it meant walking almost nonstop for 24 hours. John saw her plight and determination and emptied his pockets of whatever cash he had so she could buy food, and off she went. Why? Because she was part of the community of that family, and being a part of it was personally and culturally important. Now let's explore the reasons why people attend the wake and funeral. The broad overarching reasons are twofold. First, to pay one's respects as an act of support to the family and two, to help ourselves to deal with the loss, to remember that person's impact on us, and to start the grieving process to heal. It's often been said, one goes to a wake or funeral to support the living, but not the dead. I've asked Becky Lomaka, Director of Grief and Support Education at O'Connor Mortuary, a family-owned funeral and cemetery company in Southern California, to share about what she tries to do to help families cope with the loss, both before and after the passing of a loved one. And my role is to provide support and resources for the community. A big part of my job is to provide education and resources to our healthcare partners. So I work with our local hospices, with our local faith communities, with our local hospitals, providing them with both resources and education on how they can best come alongside the dying and come alongside people who are grieving and bereaved. My background is in counseling psychology, and then I'm also a certified sanitologist, which is basically went back to school to get my focus on death and dying. In America, often there is a wake or gathering of people the day before the funeral service and burial. This is a chance for people to gather and support the family, share stories and remembrances of the deceased. These gatherings aren't parties per se, but tend to be subdued events, often with some food or snacks. The next day is a more formal event called the, quote, celebration of life, or, quote, memorial service, or funeral service. These are important to everyone as they are rituals for the process of grieving, healing, and closure for many. And what we know, and I, I am assuming what you've experienced in the Congo, is that those mourning rituals are actually really important to help us move forward in our grief. Not get rid of it, not recover, not move on, yet move forward in the grief. We are not, we're not designed to go it alone. Other cultures have very specific rituals when the individual dies. And that the grievers, the family, are supported by their community. And somewhere along the lines, around in the 1960s, when there was a woman up in San Francisco who wrote a book about, you know, we don't need all of this, 
the funeral homes are just out to get your money and you don't just, just cremate and you're going to move on and you're going to be fine. She couldn't have been more wrong. And we saw this over COVID when we couldn't do funerals like we had in the past. And people, all of a sudden, when people couldn't have a funeral, boy, did they ever want it now. Yet weaving that person's life, both the good and the bad, and allowing that family to have that moment of sadness and and profound grief is actually super healthy. I want to see people crying in there. Can you laugh and can you have fun and can you make it individualized to really tell the story of that person's life? Absolutely. And it serves a very important role. In the U.S., oftentimes the family has prepaid for funeral services and cemetery plots. Everything is set up, and the funeral service staff often take over with any embalming or cremation duties. They also coordinate the memorial service, using input from the family for any music, speakers, and other parts of the service. The funeral home also coordinates the flowers, graveside service, and handles the digging of the hole, the hearse, and the procession, and so on. The burden of all these details is handled by others so the family doesn't have this pressure to deal with, along with coping with the loss of their loved one. In Congo, pre-planning is not the norm. This is partially cultural due to how they value life. I've asked Talabisa Dawena to share more. Yes, somebody's gone, but life is important. So in other words, you have spent your time grieving and you have expressed, you have flushed out all the feelings that were involved with that, that loss. But life is important and you have to continue. And so most Africans would actually move on. I would say maybe faster because they've had a time to really deal with their emotions without holding anything back. For one, it's part of culture because if you don't express that type of sorrow and deep, intense regret and uh, sometimes remorse and all that, then you're suspicious. Uh, why are you, you expressing that intense uh, feeling of loss? Did you have anything to do with that? That's one thing. But also, it's it's deep because you know we value life a lot. I think the the more intense the grieving period, the, the faster the person gets over it afterward because that time has actually allowed him to actually flush out all the feelings of loss and everything. The wake starts almost immediately after the passing. While people, messages, and bicycles are dispatched to notify people of the death, the family moves to prepare the body to display and have the grieving begin. There's no prepaid package for the embalming, funeral service, or internment. This is where the friends of the family will step in to help carry the load of the event to support the family. I've asked my friend Motese Moyu to explain the process. If the deceased is a woman, the other women will take the body in the back and bathe the body and dress the body. If it's a man, the men of the family will do the same. Then they will dress the person in their Sunday best as the body will be on display for the next 24 to 36 hours or so. People will build a shelter in front of the house and a raised table of sorts on which to place the body. A palm frond roof structure will be made to shelter the body on display. The body will be covered in a sheet. 
Meanwhile, the family begins to prepare for the next 24 to 36 hours by boiling water, gathering wood, and collecting food. People are asked to pitch in as a way of supporting the family with money or food. Talabisa Dawena further explains. And then it even goes further because depending on how influential the person was in the community, I've seen young people go in streets and block streets and force people to give something to pay for the funeral. Because the sign is everybody's supposed to mourn that person. And during that time as well, those that come to accompany the family and the relatives uh, will at some point give some money to help with the funeral uh, costs. And there's going to be a list with names and how many uh, people came and what those people gave. Depending on the deceased person's influence and position in the community, there may be a battle as to the location of the burial. Villagers often want to bury their dead in the village, while more prominent and educated city folks push for a city cemetery. It's not uncommon for a villager's spouse to be buried in the front or backyard and a hut built over it. Or, a child that has died will often be buried in the front yard of a home. When there is a person that lived in the city for many years, there can be a major fight between the village family and city family as to the location of the grave. I recall once in the 1970s when my dad was asked to transport a prominent family to a village to retrieve a body to bring it back to the city for burial. We got in our pickup truck, loaded up the family, and off we went. Dad was driving and I was in the back with the family. About a mile from the village, like clockwork, everyone started to cry, wail, and yell. They'd lean out of the truck yelling to folks walking on the road about how so-and-so had died and how sad they were. Hey, everybody, my relative has died. Oh, everybody, my relative is dead. This is so sad. The folks on the side of the road would begin to wail and cry and carry on as well. What was interesting is that the family patriarch in the truck with us was a high-level school official and carried himself in a dignified manner for his job and in the community. Yet here he was, wailing, crying, sobbing, and yelling about his grief. Upon arrival, the villagers continued their crying with the new energy from the city folks. Then, after some time, we could tell that the unity of the grievers had been disrupted. Murmuring started. Voices were raised. Then, yelling ensued. The villagers had become very upset that the city folks were disrupting the plans to have the burial in the village. Meanwhile, one of the villagers, who I should mention had been drinking way too much palm wine, came over and started yelling at me and my dad for being the cause of this family dispute. Unfortunately, emotions were running high, along with his alcohol content, and he was wielding a machete, waving it around at us for disrupting the situation. Dad turned to me and said very firmly, Jeff, get in the truck and lock the door. It was one of the very few times I ever saw my dad scared. I did so with no delay. Fortunately, the guy cooled his jets, the city folks agreed to have the burial in the village, and we returned home in one piece. 
determining the grave site is a big deal. I'll let Talabisa elaborate. So this is our land. This is where we buried our grand ancestors. So this is our land that makes a kind of seal, sealing a place that that apart, uh, that belongs to to a certain group of people. So that is one way. But now many people are living in cities. Well, many people may die in cities, but they will still take the, the body to the, the village to go bury the bury the. That seems to be also sometimes the reason why we even take back bodies from here to go bury, bury in Africa, the family land or whatever, because that's where they belong to, according to our belief. So now that the gravesite is established, the wake continues. People are coming in at all hours of the day and night to attend this time before the funeral service. Motesa Moyu elaborates. This time of gathering includes lots of singing, talking, and just sitting together. Besides being a support to the family, it's a support to the village and to the community of friends and co-workers of the deceased. Often there is a goat that is killed to prepare a big meal for everyone. The purpose of the big meal for all the attendees is to bring joy to the immediate family by seeing everyone eating and getting full. Remember that meat and protein is not a big part of one's village diet, so having a big meal with goat meat, for example, is indeed a big deal and a special treat. Segbewi further explains the gathering of the people at this time. Uh, you know, uh, experience that it's very intense. People will be wailing, crying, weeping. And then at some point in Kinshasa, you also hear of people that are hired to go and cry at the funeral uh, place because it's a time where, you know, people regret the passing of that individual and are very sad and, of course, you know, want to express it. During the night, some folks will stay awake outside by the fire and by the body on display on the raised table and under the palm frond structure. Wailing and crying will continue all night, and this will get a boost as new folks show up and are now facing the reality of their friend or family member lying on display. Lots of emotions are being expressed. In a Christian setting, before daybreak, at say 4 a.m., people will start singing songs. Choirs will be formed around the body, and the sad songs will be sung as a way to share the grief. Many will start dancing with the music. Then, the women will make coffee. This coffee will be unsweetened, so it's black and bitter. People will drink it to warm up, stay awake, and remember symbolically through the bitterness of the coffee their grief in the loss of this person. When the wake is done, it's now time to move to the funeral service. What I find interesting is that over the years, the terms of the funeral service have changed from memorial service to celebration of life. It's a shift of focusing on memories to rather celebrating that person's role in our life and the life of the community. Renaming the service does place a more positive bent to it all. Another interesting thing I've observed through attending funerals is the theme and tone and approach to the service between those who have a faith, any faith, be it Christian, Catholic, Baha'i, Muslim, or other faith, as compared to a pure secular service where there is no religious component 
or even an atheist position. The services where a religious faith is involved has the underlying theme of hope. This hope is that the deceased is not gone forever and that those remaining will join them sometime in the future. Becky Lomaka, who's attended hundreds of funerals in her career, elaborates her experience. People who have a specific faith, whether it be Christian, whether it be Judaism, if they're Muslim, if they're Buddhist, if they're Hindu, you know, people who have a specific religion and embrace those traditions, those funeral rituals that are set in place, you absolutely see a difference from those people who have no faith, um, you know, they don't prescribe to a particular religion. From talking to my guests and Becky, and from my own experience, the memorial service format and content is very similar between the U.S. and Congo. The officiant will share about the person. Family members will share the eulogy. Stories and memories will be shared by children and grandchildren. Close friends will tell stories of the person's impact on their life through their work or friendship and so on. And in the U.S., if technology is available, videos and photos will be up on a screen to give a visual perspective of the person's life from childhood to adulthood. And normally, the immediate family doesn't do too much as they're there to soak in the support and try to salve their sorrows with the kind words and memories. And in many cases, they're too emotional to participate anyways. But what is prevalent is that in the U.S., showing of emotions, crying, wailing, and so on, is usually stifled and suppressed. It's not dignified for men, especially, to cry in public, especially a man of community prominence. Becky shares more. In general, absolutely. And people don't want to do ceremony because they feel like it's going to hurt too bad. And I don't want to expose myself. I don't want to expose those feelings. You know, if I can go to the doctor and get a pill to pop to take away this pain and numb myself, you know, that is, is even better. Segbewi explains from the Congolese perspective. Yeah, I think naturally Africans are very expressive, whether it's joy or pain, sorrow or anger. We're, we're very expressive. So that's no difference when it comes to sorrow and grief. There is a story I'd like to insert here about a very interesting experience at a funeral service in Congo, as shared by my dad, Roger Eels. August 1st, 1981, we wrote of a unique experience that I had that week. It was on Sunday. Word came from the village of Bombiatawe uh, that Tata Saba, Father Saba, one of the first pastors in the 1930s and 40s, had passed away in the village that afternoon. And so I thought it would be well for me to go and contact Pastor Saba and offer to drive him and his family to the village. So I went with my little Fusho pickup truck. I picked him up about 7, and we headed out. So we did arrive in the village about 8.30 p.m. that night. I decided I wasn't going to stay, but I would drive on to, to Tandala for the night. And one reason was because, first of all, I had no place to stay there, and they were discussing where they were going to bury the body. 
The village people, of course, hey, he's our pastor, we want him here. But the church authorities and other people thought, no, he should be buried at Tandala. And sure enough, next morning about 6 a.m., as things were getting light, two huge trucks arrived in Tandala carrying the body and lots of people. So they were going to have the funeral that day within 24 hours of the death. Normal, what they always do. However, there were other problems, and that is it started to rain. So things were kind of put on hold. All day Monday, people were coming in by truck and whatever means uh, to Tandala to be there for the funeral, and that lasted all day long. So it had to be postponed until the next morning on Tuesday, meaning we are getting close to 48 hours after his death on Sunday afternoon. So about 9 o'clock, the funeral was scheduled to begin, and so I was in the Tondala Church, and we, of course, sat in the pews. But we're honored guests, and so chairs and things were set up for us to sit on the platform within several feet of the coffin. And so we were asked to go up there <laughs> and we take our seat and little did we know it was interesting because the odor was very foul and smelling and we looked at the coffin and after Saba, the body was beginning to expand, swell, and so uh, we thought, oh boy, this is something. And I remember rubbing my fingers on my nose because I didn't wash my hands after having the sweet rolls, so I had some sugar and smell. And then Dorma decides to go back to the house and get some tissue or something and put some perfume on it. She came back and gave it to all the missionaries. They were sitting in a row, just feet from the coffin with, with Pastor Tava. So what's going to happen? Well, nine o'clock came and they didn't start the service. And so they decided we're going to have to wait. And they didn't tell us why. It was about an hour and a half after we were sitting there, in comes to the church a new box a coffin, a wooden one, and they were going to fix it so that after some of the body could be put into a new box. And then the question was, as they were doing this, are they going to lift up the body and move it into the next box, or what are they going to do? Well, fortunately, they decided whoever was responsible, the carpenter made a new box and it was bigger than the old box. So it was a very simple thing just to take the old box, put it into the new box, and put on the cover. That's it, care of that. So we were finally relieved and it got to be more pleasant there sitting on the platform. So they began the service, and it was a typical service where certain people would, would give uh, a word and, and various things were done and choir saying and the usual thing that they do for funerals. And uh, they finished about 11.30. Okay, now they're going to take the body to a short distance there at Tondala to the cemetery. Then they make an announcement. Uh, we are delayed. Uh, we're not going to be able to take the body now. Stay where you are. Just be quiet, please. 
Well, we always wondered now what we were wondering what was going on now. What what are we waiting for now? Then the word came about a half hour or so, about 12 o'clock or so. Okay, we're ready for the burial. Well, what was the problem? The problem was they had to make the hole bigger for the bigger box. So that took some time, and they hadn't thought about that until after the service. So finally, about 12, 12.30, the body, the new coffin was taken out of the church, brought down to the cemetery, and then they had the burial service there. So that was the end of that. It was quite an experience, very stressful for the Africans, I'm sure, but uh, we heard nobody complaining. Nobody was complaining. What kind of fiasco is this? So that was the funeral of Pastor Tatasaba. Wow. I laugh every time I hear that story. Not in disrespect to Tatasaba, who I knew as he was a very impactful man, but just the series of events that only compounded the problems and the genius of Norma Colby getting a bottle of perfume with a box of Kleenex to share with everyone seated close to the body so they'd survive the smell. I just had to throw that story in to lighten up this episode and create a bitter perspective on the reality and ritual of how we deal with death. The service ends, and in the U.S., there's either a time of food and sharing with a smaller service for the burial, or the family and close friends drive in a procession to the cemetery to have a graveside service, and then is followed up with a gathering with food or a meal to end the day. A headstone is normally acquired after the fact, and the name, dates of life, and a few other words are carved or inscribed on the headstone to commemorate that person's life. In Congo, after the funeral service, there is a procession to the cemetery, if you're in a city, or in the village, the coffin would be carried to the gravesite nearby. The coffin is dropped and covered in dirt, and usually a small marker or cross is added. Often, the grave is raised up and not flush with the ground, or a hut will be built atop the grave at some point in the future. I have seen crosses and headstones in Congo with the letters R.I.P. on them. I asked my Congolese friend what it meant, and he didn't know. Interesting. So now it's over. The whirlwind of events, planning, gatherings, traveling, emotions, and memories are done. After a few days, the family drives away or flies home, leaving the family alone. In the U.S., the reality of the passing of a loved one really hits home a week or two later when everyone has left and returned to their normal lives. And in the U.S., due to geography being a major factor, the immediate support community is very slim. People have careers, kids, and little league practice to go to. So being around a widow or widower is difficult. A friend of mine that lost his wife of 47 years to brain cancer last fall told me, I'm learning to live alone. I'm learning to not be lonely. Contrast this to Congo where the village community is still there. A man that lost his wife still has many children and relatives living in the village and still has the village support system. This is good and healthy for the people grieving to still have this. Then, another interesting thing is that for 40 days after the funeral, people will continue to come and show support for the family. If a widow is left without a spouse, she does wear different clothes during this period of mourning to show everyone of her grief. 
In the U.S., one wears black to the wake and funeral to show sorrow, but after that, it's often normal attire. In Congo, on the 40th day, there's a big party where everyone comes together for a big meal to mark the end of the morning period. This is a time of stories, testimonies, and memories. There is another sad dimension that bears mentioning where it involves a husband that passes away and leaves a widow and children in Congo. Unfortunately, a widow can be left destitute. Segbewi explains. It is still prevalent. It still happens. But again, now that there is this era of information and education, urbanization of uh, and everything, uh, it is actually somewhat balanced out with the knowledge or the level of education of the husband. Like for me, I would make it clear that if I, should I pass unexpectedly sooner than expected and all that, that nobody should bother my wife. Everything I have goes to her and to my daughter. So I make it clear it is written and this is opposable to anything else that somebody can say. The problem has been up until this point that there was none such conversation because we don't want to talk about death. Talking about death is like bringing death upon yourself. So because people didn't talk about it, everything that the husband had in terms of resources, wealth, and all that is considered as this is our son. This is our family. It belongs to us. And you talk about stuff in the house, we're talking about properties. We're talking about houses. You know, when the family would come and say, you know, this is ours, this is this is ours. And it, unless there is a will, unless there is a, somehow the husband had mentioned something, but if he didn't, any uncle, any relative, any cousin that has, that has some level of influence can come and claim the stuff from my brother, stuff from my cousin, stuff from my you know, a son who actually passed. Wow. Though prevalent and common years ago, fortunately this is slowly changing for the better as women gain careers and Western influence and laws are changing. Death brings a reflection on eternal issues. Are we a mere compilation of cells and bacteria that evolved from primordial soup by chance with no purpose and it will all end when we die? Or are we here for a reason with hope for life beyond the grave? Is there a spiritual dimension? For a sudden passing of someone, it's a wake-up call to focus on the goodness of people, the positive impact he or she had, and a reminder of how precious life is and how we should cherish our family and friends as life can be taken from us in an instant. I think for believers of a faith, this is easier to accept as they have the hope of life hereafter. For non-believers, agnostics, or atheists, death does trigger some deep-down realities. Here is Becky's experience in this regard. They don't think that their person just no longer ceases to exist. It's really interesting. You can talk to parents who have had children die. Even if they profess to be atheists, they do not believe that that child simply ceases to exist. They have some um, way of acknowledging that there is still that bond with that individual, whether it's the bird that follows them when they're walking or, you know, the rainbow in the sky. So 
Sometimes it's heaven and I have the promise and that hope that I know I'm going to see this person again. But they pull from within to find this connection with that person. So it's really interesting that it, um, we call, you know, it's, it's more of that spiritual connection versus a religious connection. The goal should be to move forward with the grief. The goal is never to get over it. The goal is not to recover. The goal is not to move on. But what we do and what most people do pretty well and pretty naturally is move forward in their grief. So we never stop grieving, whether you've lost a sibling, a baby, you know, somebody that you've been married to for 60 plus years, that grief doesn't go away. That grief changes over time and eventually move forward and over time see those edges of grief soften so there are more happy stories, more laughter. Oh my gosh, I remember when this happened. One of my conclusions from my interviews and experience is that death is more communal in Congo than in the U.S. Handling death and grieving is more individual in the U.S. While in Congo, since death is so prevalent, people do move on more quickly and process their grief better. They have to, to survive emotionally and physically, and thankfully, the village and family community help so much in this regard. Becky supports this position. Yet other cultures, when a death occurs, it's more communal. It's more about the community. Whereas typically, not always, but it typically in the U.S. and North America, it's very individual. It's all about me. Whereas in other parts of the world, it is the village or it is the community coming together to, to walk alongside the grieving people. I mean, you look at the, the Jewish faith and, you know, their funeral rituals are specifically designed to mourn the loss and then in a certain point at that point where you're you know you're placing the earth into the you know onto the casket and then they form two lines and the family the grievers walk through those two lines that is the significant shift in ritual that we've buried this person now it's not about this person anymore now it's about you the griever and then we will sit our shiva and we will come alongside so Yes, I absolutely agree with you. Somewhere along the lines here in North America, we just decided that we don't need this. We don't need this ritual. It's not important, and we are too sophisticated. Do you know, in so many parts of the world, complicated grief is not even a thing. People don't have complicated grief. Why? Because they have these rituals in place. You know, right? You 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 do everything. The funeral's over. Well, you've had your three bereavement days and then get back to work and what? You're, you know, three weeks later, you're still crying, you know? You're, you're not over this yet? You know, what's wrong with you? When funeral services were canceled during the COVID epidemic, this left a huge hole in many people's lives, not being able to grieve properly and start the healing by virtue of the ritual of the funeral process. Also, having the ritual of the wake Funeral and internment is important to everyone, especially the family left behind. So I'd encourage you to take some of the culture from Congo and show your grief and emotions when you do lose someone. It's better for you, really. Continue to offer support in time and money and emotions well beyond the few days after the internment. This is so important to both you and the widow or widower left alone. 
It's easy to, quote, move forward, unquote, and jump back on the treadmill of life after a loss. But being more communal does have a better impact in the long run for everyone. Thanks to all my guests that shared their stories and perspectives for today's episode. Talabisa Dawena, Segbewi Mobali, Motese Moyu, Becky Lomaka, and Roger Eels. I learned a lot from everyone, and I trust this was informative to the listener. We all have to deal with death. Our families and friends will pass away, and one day we will too. My wish is that this episode helps you in your journey of grief and support for those who pass away and those loved ones that remain. The Congolese culture can teach us here in the U.S. some things in this regard. You are part of the community to help those through their loss. So be there for your family and friends like the Congolese. Hopefully, they will be there for you when you need it, like the Congolese. So that concludes this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and will listen again. Other podcasts and blog articles on a variety of topics can be found at congokid.net. In addition, Congo Kids Life Stories are also posted on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I'm Jeff Eels, a.k.a. Congo Kid, your humble host. Until next time, I will send you off with a farewell in Lingala. Baninganangai, tikalamalamu. My friends, stay well.